0: In talking about the Last Supper and the Eucharist, our starting point is the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6, the Bread of Life, very long chapter in the Gospel. Uh, We have the multiplication of the loaves, and then Jesus goes on to speak about the Eucharist becoming more and more explicit about what it means. And at one point in verse 52, uh, he tells them that, We must eat his flesh. The bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews are shocked at this, understandably. Uh, Yet, rather than modify the teaching, Jesus doubles down on it. And in order to realize what's involved here, we're going to look in great detail at the section, uh, verses 53 to 58. Because within that section, uh, the word to eat occurs five times. But Jesus uses two different words, two different Greek words. Now, Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. But in the Greek version of the Gospel of John that we have, these are the words that are used. Uh, One word, the ordinary word normally used for eating, is phagein. Uh, You can see it there on the slide, Uh, ph a g e i n that's to eat the ordinary word to eat up to consume even to devour and that word phagine occurs in chapter 6 of john no less than 10 times and the last occurrence is in verse 53 where jesus says i tell you most solemnly if you do not eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you will not have life in you if you do not eat. Fagete. That's the word. But then Jesus continues on without interruption the following verses. And in verse 54 he says, Anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. Now here the word is not fagine, it's trogain. That's a different word. Now trogain means... Not simply to eat. Throgain means to, to gnaw, to chew, uh, to eat raw vegetables or fruit, to munch. It's a cruder, a more literal word for to eat. Anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. And again, three more occurrences of Throgain. Actually, what we have is hot trogon, uh, present participle, the one who eats, the one eating. Uh, and that hot trogon occurring four times who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. Whoever eats me will draw life from me. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. So what's the significance of this change of use from the simple word for eating to the more earthy, chewing, or munching? By switching from phagine to throgine in response to the Jews' objections, Jesus is stressing that he is speaking literally and not metaphorically. What he's talking about is real eating just to give you a little more of this, from two commentaries uh, on the Gospel of St. John, one is by Francis Maloney, SDB, uh, the Gospel of John. And Maloney says, the shift from the more respectable verb to eat, fagain, to another verb that indicates the physical crunching with the teeth, throgine, accentuates that Jesus refers to a real experience of eating. See? Real, not metaphorical. Then we have the very well-known commentary by Raymond Brown, rather older commentary, The Gospel According to John. And what he has to say is the use of trogaine is part of John's attempt to emphasize the realism of the Eucharistic flesh and blood. So, is Jesus advocating cannibalism here? Well, we have to take this passage together with the words that Jesus used at the Last Supper and then it become very clear uh, that he's not talking about cannibalism. I'm talking about the Last Supper to throw more light really On the significance of the words of Jesus from uh, John chapter 6. At the Last Supper, very very common for us to think of that as being uh, the Jewish Passover meal adapted now for Christian usage, so to speak, uh, that Jesus transformed the Passover meal into his own special meal, the Eucharist. Now, Here, the common uh, feeling among scholars is that the Last Supper of Jesus was not, in fact, a Jewish Passover meal. Uh, For this section, I'm following this book here by uh, Pope Benedict and Joseph Ratzinger, (coughs) Jesus of Nazareth, you know, three volumes. Uh, The second volume that he wrote is on Holy Week and there's a marvelous chapter in this book on the Last Supper. So I'm following a Ratzinger because he, he's, he's, he wants us to stress he's not talking as Pope, he's talking as a theologian. You're not obliged to believe whatever he writes in this book. But just taking it purely as theology, it's, it's as good as you'll get on the Eucharist and on the Last Supper. So uh, the conclusion is that the Last Supper was not the Jewish Passover feast, took place the evening before. So uh, the Jewish Passover would have begun the following evening starting at sunset and ending at sunset the following day. So that would have been sunset on Good Friday to sunset on Holy Saturday. Uh, You have basically uh, two different narratives that are kind of hard to reconcile and Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, acknowledges this difficulty. Matthew and Mark talk about a Passover meal and that has led many people to identify the Last Supper as the the typical celebration of the Passover uh, by the disciples of Jesus, with Jesus himself, as they would have celebrated every previous uh, year to that. But here is what um, Pope Benedict has written on this. He tells us that the, the crucifixion took place not on the Passover day itself but on the day before the Passover and now I'm quoting from him. John is right when he says that at the time of Jesus's trial before Pilate the Jewish authorities had not yet Eaten the Passover and thus had to keep themselves ritually pure. That's why they wouldn't go into the Praetorium. They wouldn't associate with the Gentiles, with the Romans. And uh, Benedict continues. He is right that the crucifixion took place not on the feast but on the day Before the feast. This means that Jesus died at the hour when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. Jesus died at the ninth hour, that would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, and that would be the time when nearby in the temple uh, the lambs were being slaughtered for the Paschal feast of the Jews uh, to take place later that evening that night. And the significance of that coincidence, of course, was not lost on the early Christian community and the identification of Jesus as the true Paschal Lamb. So uh, the question does remain, why did the Synoptic uh, Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, speak about a Passover meal. You know, where do you want us to go to prepare uh, the Passover? Uh, Here, Benedict's answer to this, and again I quote, Jesus knew that he was about to die. He knew that he would not be able to eat the Passover again. Fully aware of this, He invited his disciples to a Last Supper of a very special kind, one that followed no specific Jewish ritual, but rather constituted his farewell. During the meal, he gave them something new. He gave them himself as the true Lamb. And thereby instituted his Passover. That's his Passover, which has become our Eucharist, our Mass. And so I'm again uh, quoting Benedict. On this basis, we can understand how it was that very early on, Jesus' Last Supper, which includes not only a prophecy, But a real anticipation of the cross and resurrection in the Eucharistic gifts was regarded as a Passover, as his Passover, and so it was. So the Eucharist is the Christian Passover, the Passover of Jesus, our Passover, and yet the original celebration took place the day before. Did not coincide with the Jewish Passover. So just to look at this a bit more detail, what actually happened at the Last Supper, just to look at the words that Jesus used. And these come now from the the Bible, of course. They come from four sources in the Bible. They come from the uh, four Gospels, Well, actually, three of the Gospels and also from St. Paul, the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, and then the Gospel of Luke and uh, St. Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians. And they fall into two schools, so to speak. Matthew and Mark are saying practically the same thing with a few minor details. And then St. Luke and St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, are likewise saying practically the same thing with a few minor differences. So let's look at them. First of all, Matthew and Mark. Over the bread, Jesus pronounces the words simply, this is my body. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, uh, the words that Paul gives us over the bread the words of Jesus this is my body which is for you so a little addition there and then Luke even adds a little bit more this is my body which is given for you and then both Luke and Paul uh, but not Matthew and Mark add at the end of add immediately after the words over the bread, do this in remembrance of me. And this is part of the probably to at mass, but after the bread and after the wine being consecrated. So over the wine, again we have that same uh, distinction, Matthew and Mark on the one hand, uh, Luke and Paul on the other. So what Mark has Jesus saying over the wine, this is my blood of the Covenant, which is poured out for many. And Matthew adds, this is the blood of the Covenant, which is poured out for many, and adds, for the forgiveness of sins. Again, words that you will readily recognize. Then St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, Tells us that Jesus said, this chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Luke, this chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, uh, interesting point here, if we take kind of slightly different versions of Matthew and Mark on the one hand, and Luke and Paul on the other, uh, they echo two different scenes in the Old Testament. Matthew and Mark echo the scene from the book of Exodus, Exodus 24, 8, um, where we're told, you know, Half the blood Moses took up and put into basins, the other half he cast on the altar, and so on. Then Moses took the blood and cast it towards the people. This, he said, is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, containing all these rules. So in writing down what they recall of the words of Jesus, Matthew and Mark, very much have that scene from Exodus 24 in mind. And then, on the other hand, Luke and Paul have a scene from much later in the the Old Testament from the prophet Jeremiah 31 verse 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, writing the law in their hearts. The new covenant. So they see then the Last Supper the fulfillment of that prophecy of Jeremiah. This chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Behind all of this of course, the extraordinary generosity and love of our Lord, the self-sacrifice uh, that takes place within the Last Supper and of course is carried on to concrete fulfillment in Gethsemane and finally on Calvary. Again to finish off by quoting from uh, Benedict XVI once again, his life will be taken from him on the cross but here, that's here at the Last Supper, here He is already laying it down. He transforms his violent death into a free act of self-giving for others and to others. We move on now to reflect on the subject of communion, communion with Jesus, with God, but also Communion with others. So uh, to throw some light on this theme I'd like to say a word about a most remarkable uh, Dominican that I had the privilege of meeting many years ago in, of all places, Afghanistan. Uh, this is Father Serge de Boracay who is a French Dominican of the Paris province uh, born in 1917, uh, died in 2005. Father Serge was a world authority on Islam, uh, Sufism, and inter-religious dialogue. Ordained as a young man in 1946, uh, he was one of three uh, French Dominican fathers who founded the Dominican Institute for Oriental Studies in Cairo. The Dominicans still have a large priory on the outskirts of Cairo uh, where this remarkable library and institute continues to this day. Father Serge began his research on Islamic mysticism and in time became a specialist in Persian Sufi mysticism. In 1963, he was appointed as professor of Muslim mysticism in the University of Kabul in Afghanistan. So he moved from Cairo to Afghanistan. But he didn't simply lead the life of an academic there. He also devoted himself uh, to helping uh, the less well-off, Particularly the many orphans and street uh, children in that city. And he he describes how uh, all of this began. Uh, An impoverished student named Gaffar invited him to his home to share a meal, to share bread and salt. That was the phrase bread and salt. And that encounter was, for Father Serge, uh, life-changing. It became uh, for him a sign and a symbol of what he described as the hidden presence of Christ among the Muslims of Afghanistan. He opened his house to poor and marginalized boys, street children. He housed them he fed them and educated them. All of this cost a certain amount of money and he was able to do this out of his professor's salary and also because at this time he was now becoming a very successful author in the subject of Christianity, uh, Islam, inter-religious dialogue. So money that came from his books, he used that for uh, looking after the boys as well. Gradually over time, He withdrew from academic pursuits to become an announcer of good news to the poor. In his own words, the purpose of my life in Kabul. Gaffer gave me the key to understanding it. I was here to share in the life of the Afghan people, in the ordinary day-to-day things simply by eating with them. Such a sharing tied my destiny to theirs. However the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980 and the subsequent guerrilla war, the years of warfare after that, forced Father for Serge to leave Afghanistan in 1983 and return to France. In 1976, I was returning on holidays from our mission in India in the company of Father Simon Roach. Father Simon Roach is a member, as many of you will know, a community, this community here in St. Mary's. Uh, Simon died in the year 2016. So Simon and I travelled overland through Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, and onwards, and eventually reached Ireland. but we spent a few nights in uh, Kabul, and we went to visit Father Serge in his house on the outskirts of the city. It was kind of a fairly large, old stone house, uh, quite quite big in a way, uh, fairly big, not not very small anyway, but it was occupied by Father Serge and approximately twenty Uh, boys, I'd say about 20. (coughs) Um, Many of them, they would have been between the ages of 10 and 17 or 18. And quite a number of them were carrying physical or mental handicaps. We arrive at the house, Father Serge brings Simon and myself into his study and he gives us a martini and this now is a room lined with bookshelves stacked with scholarly works mostly on Islam and Christianity, many of them in Arabic script which of course is illegible to us. Then after the pleasant interview with the martini the three of us proceed into the dining room and a different world altogether. Shoes off, we sit on the floor around a huge mound of pilau rice on a large square of linoleum. The boys are all sitting around, (coughs) we're all sitting in a circle. After a prayer, Father Serge handed Simon and myself a spoon and a plate. And we serve ourselves from the mound. And then when we've served ourselves, everybody begins to eat. The boys don't have plates or spoons. They start eating with their right hands, no plates, rhythmically transporting the rice and lamb from the mound directly into their mouths. And I was really struck at that moment about the dipping of their hands into the rice and uh, taking it to their mouths. It reminded me of some words in the Gospel relating to the Last Supper, the words of Jesus. Someone who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping into the same dish with me. And here we have a a cultural resonance between Afghanistan in the 20th century and Israel in the 1st century. When you share a meal in that intimate way, with a hand going into the same dish, there's a bond, a communion is set up between those who share the meal, a bond that is sacred. And then for betrayal then to uh, come from that place is particularly serious. That of course was the story with Judas. On a more positive note, uh, something that Father Serge says, Since the Lord has shared bread with his apostles and formed one communion with them in his body every sharing of bread seems to me to be a preparation for or an extension of the eucharist my own impression of that experience of dining with father serge de borokai and those young Afghan boys. Love is global and that meal with mostly Muslims seemed to me indeed as pointing to a communion that Jesus sets up among us. And our sacramental communion sadly being denied to most of us at this time The words, again, of St. Paul, The fact that there is only one loaf means that, though there are many of us, we form a single body because we all have a share in this one loaf.